I am Joe Collins, and it is a pleasure to be here with you this morning. It's been a little while since I've been up here uh, preaching to you. I want to thank uh, Marty for doing a great job the past couple of weeks preaching. It's just nice to be in a fellowship where we have brothers that can come up and teach and uh, break up the monotony. I know as, uh, as awesome as I am, as incredible as I am, as, as I'm often asked to speak publicly everywhere I go, I know it gets boring at some points. And so it's nice to, to be able to break up the monotony. As you know, our mission at Simi Church is to love and live like Jesus. And uh, if we're ever going to do that, then we're going to have to be like Jesus. That's just, there's just no other way around it. And so the process of becoming like Jesus is what we call spiritual formation. And that's, that's really what I'm about right now. That's really what I'm trying to do. Whenever I speak to the church, my goal is to try to get us a, a step further down the road of spiritual formation. Last time I was up here several weeks ago, we talked about listening to the guiding voice of God. Today we're going to talk about letting go and letting God. So there was this couple. They had been married 60 years. They were well into their 80s, 85, 86 years old, and they were in amazing health. Partly because the wife after her husband retired, made it her personal mission to make sure that herself and her husband were in tip-top shape. So she made sure that their diet was exactly what it needed to be, low fat, low salt, all that stuff. He made sure that she, the, the, her husband went to his regular checkups and, and saw his doctor on a regular occasion. And then she also made sure that they exercised. Early in the morning, even in the evenings, they had a very regimented exercise routine, and it worked. They were in amazing shape for 85. But they died in a car crash. When they came to after their death in the car accident, they found themselves standing at the gates of heaven. And St. Peter was there. And because they were good, godly people, St. Peter said, hey, you guys, congratulations, you made it. Come on in. Let me show you around. So he takes them through heaven, and he's explaining to them that in heaven, there's these different neighborhoods, and every neighborhood has kind of the center of the neighborhood, which is the country club. So he takes them to the country club. And he walks in, he goes, you know, and we all like to eat together on a regular basis. And he walks him right into the dining hall. And if, could you believe it? In the dining hall, this massive hall, there's this massive table with every awesome food you could ever imagine. Full, just an amazing buffet of food. And the husband says, uh, hey, when, uh, when are the lunch times? And Peter goes, what are you talking about? This is heaven. There's no lunch time. You can eat whenever you want. As a matter of fact, this table is here all the time, 24-7. It never goes bad. It's always the best food. And the old man says, well, uh, how, how much can we eat? He goes, how much? What are you talking about? This is heaven. You can eat whatever you want, how much you want, how often you want. And the old man is still skeptical, and he goes, okay, but where's the... Where's the low salt table and where's the, the low cholesterol food? And, you know, I got to watch my health here. And, and Peter says, sir, you're, you're not understanding it. This is heaven. You can eat whatever you want, whenever you want, how often you want, and you'll never have an effect from it. It'll never hurt your body in any way, shape, or form. You'll always be healthy. He says, now, come on. Let's go outside and look at the recreation. Let's go see what there is to do. And they go outside, and there's this gorgeous golf course and tennis courts and jacuzzis everywhere. And everybody's having a great time. It's perfect weather all the time. 
Then the old man says, well, where's the, where's the fitness center? Peter says, fitness center? This is heaven. You don't have to worry about your fitness in heaven. You're going to be in perfect shape all the time. Your body's never going to change. It's going to stay perfect just the way it is. Okay. All three of the harmful foods. I heard she's, she's looking up food in heaven. She doesn't believe St. Peter. You need whatever you want. You don't have to work out ever. So he goes, let me, let me take you to your house. So they, they're driving, and along the way, the old man's looking, and he goes, hey, Peter, I noticed there's no hospital or doctor's office. Where, where am I going to go for my checkups and stuff? And Peter's like, oh, come on. Sir, don't you understand? This is heaven. There's no hospitals in heaven. There's no doctor's offices. You don't have to worry about your checkups. You are going to be perfectly healthy all the time for the rest of eternity. And the old man screamed out loud in anger and started banging his fists on the back of the chair and throwing a temper tantrum. And Peter and his wife are trying to calm him down. And they're saying, what's wrong, sir? What's, what's wrong with you? And the old man, he looked at his wife and he says, this is your fault. Your bran muffins, your vitamins, your exercise routine. I could have been here 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, sometimes we take this life just a little too seriously. We hold on tightly, don't we? We cling to it. I really believe that God has put on my heart the message that I think we need to hear as disciples today in our church this morning. We need to hear that it's okay to let go, to not hold so tightly, and to let God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for this morning, for the incredible worship. It's such a blessing to be a part of a great family of believers and trying new things and different things, all with the intent to connect to you, because what we do here on this earth is only temporary. It's limited. It's not permanent. It matters. What matters is what we do with you and what, what we're going to do for eternity. And I pray, God, that we connect to that this morning. Be with us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to read Mark chapter 8. And as you guys know, I've been doing a series called following Jesus. And the idea is we're following Jesus through the book of Mark and we're going to the places he goes. And we're going to pick up our story. Oops, my map is wrong. We're going to pick up our story in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone. Well, my, my first map, you guys are probably familiar with. We've shown it many, many times. It's, a, it's just a very simple map of the area of Palestine in the time of Jesus. But I want to draw your attention to the enlarged map here that we can see. And I want you to see where Caesarea Philippi is. It's up here in an area called Benas or Dan. It's uh, about 30 or so miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's just uh, on, the, on the edges of the region known as Galilee where Jesus spent the vast majority of his ministry life, two, two and a half years, Jesus spent in Galilee, traveling all through the area, zigzagging everywhere, preaching grace, uh, preaching repentance, practicing grace, calling people to repent for the kingdom of heaven was near, performing miracles, doing amazing things, healing people. And, and, and after two, two and a half years, he had quite a following. 
there were thousands and thousands would come out to see him everywhere he went. Crowds would gather. They'd want to see and hear what he has to say and what he might do. He was extremely well known. After about two and a half years, he decided to take a tour of some of the non-Jewish areas, the Gentile areas. And so he, he went kind of on a loop all the way over to the coast of the Mediterranean here. This area here was actually not a Jewish area. It was Phoenicia. He went to uh, Tyre and Sidon, and he traveled over into the Decapolis, which is on the, the uh, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He, healed, he, uh, he taught to 20,000-some-odd people there, fed them miraculously, just like he fed 25-some-odd thousand in Galilee. And when he was done, he returned to the, to the area around the Sea of Galilee and made his way to a town called Bethsaida, just not too far from Capernaum, right about here near the, near the Jordan River. And there, when he got off the boat, a blind man came. And that was our last message, where the blind man came and he healed him. And we talked about listening to that voice of God. And, and that's what Jesus had to do. He had to pull that blind man out so he could hear the voice of God. And we had a whole talk about our personal time with God and how it's so important and how necessary it is that we set aside time and we clear out the distractions and we're able to focus and we're able to connect to the, to the voice of God. We call that a quiet time. We read our Bible, we pray, but the idea is to just spend time each day connecting and listening to the voice of God. Well, after that interaction, they left and they went north from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi. Now, I like to give background information because after all, our series is called Following Jesus. And because we're going to these different areas, it's important that you have some context and some history about what those areas were like and what was going on at the time of Jesus. The ancient Canaanites, some a thousand years or more before Jesus lived, they inhabited this area. And in this area near Caesarea Philippi, it was basically at the base of Mount Hermon. You can see that little symbol up there. That's Mount Hermon. There was a cave. And this cave was a, an amazing, it was a beautiful place. It was an amazing cave. It's still there. And the cave has got a spring inside of it. And they, they tried to measure the depth of the spring, and they could not measure how deep the spring was. And so they believed that it was like an endless, you know, an un, 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 bottomless pit inside this cave where water was just coming out and flowing into the Jordan. And it was like part of the headwater of the Jordan River. And, and paganistic cultures, pantheistic cultures, often would find places like this that were unique. They were special geographically, the, nat the natural environment, and they would worship there. They would worship nature or whatever. And so the Canaanites worshiped there a god named Baal, a god of nature, of fertility, that kind of thing. Then many years later, the Greeks came into the area. The Greeks saw that cave, and they named the area Peneus. Now, they named it Peneus because in, Greek, there's, in, in Greece, there are caves, and the cave reminded them of some of the caves from their homeland, and they believed that the god Pan resided in the cave. And so they named it Peneus after the god of Pan. And they eventually built a sanctuary to Pan in this area, right there near the cave, where, where they would come and worship the god of Pan. Who here knows who the god of Pan is or what he looks like? Anybody want to take a guess? Tim. Exactly right. Half goat, half man plays a flute. His name is Pan. He was the god of nature. It's where we get words like pantheistic from. It means all, everything. Even though Pan was a lesser god in Greek mythology, he was still the god of everything, of creation, the god of nature. And so people worshipped him 
as that. Now, the Romans, when they came on the scene, they just adopted much of the Greek religion and philosophy and everything else, so they just continued the practice of worshiping Pan there. In about, 14, in about 4 BC, Caesar Augustus gave the land to Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king of the Israelites. He was the king of this whole area, even down into Palestine, uh, off of our map here. And he was uh, in favor with, with Caesar, and so Caesar gave him the land to be the, the, the king of the area and magistrate it and all that. And, in, and, in, and after Caesar Augustus died, Herod built a temple to Caesar at Peneus, and he put it right in front of the cave of Pan. So if you went there to worship in the first century with Jesus, if you were there with the disciples and you went into Caesarea Philippi right there on the side of Mount Hermon, you would see a huge Augustineum, they called it. It was a big four-column building, Greek architecture, and it was right in front of the cave of Pan, and to the side and the surrounding areas was the sanctuary of Pan. And the Romans believed that the Caesars were God, and so they worshipped Caesar there. You could go to the Augustineum and, and say, Caesar is Lord, and offer a sacrifice, and you could worship the Caesar. Then you could go outside across the street, you could worship Pan, the God of nature. It was a one-stop shop for, for everything spiritual and pagan in those days. It's interesting because many years later, after Jesus lived and died and was crucified, resurrected, and then the Christian uh, message got spread and the, and the Roman world started to be, began to convert to Christianity, one of the challenges that the Christians faced was that they, they, they were forced by law to worship Caesar. They had to say Caesar is Lord. But as you and I know as Christians, that was completely antithetical to the statement Jesus is Lord because as Christians, we worship Jesus. And they would take the Christians to a place like that Augustinium and force them to sacrifice to Caesar and say, Jesus is Lord. And many Christians did, and many didn't, and they were persecuted. They were martyred for their faith. Now, one other point that I want to make about this area, because it all will make sense as we get into the story, is the city of Dan. Notice that it's right next to Caesarea Philippi or Bineas, about four miles away. Anybody know why the city of Dan is significant in Jewish history. Uh, yes. It was one of the 12 tribes, right? Why else? Yes. Oh, did you, you didn't have your hand up? Why else? Well, I thought for sure someone would know this. Okay. Let me explain. About a thousand years before Jesus lived, the, the, Israel, uh, the nation of Israel came together as a, as, a, as a real nation. And they inhabited this entire land, the land of Palestine. There was Galilee, there was Samaria, and there was Judea down here. And down here was the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And God had commanded that three times a year, every Jewish man would have to travel down to the temple to worship, offer sacrifices, fulfill their uh, religious obligations. And that was the only place you were allowed to do that. You could not sacrifice anywhere else. You could not offer, make offerings anywhere else. You had to do it at the temple in Jerusalem. And, and so that was the tradition for Jews. Even in Jesus' day, they would, they would travel there three times a year and worship at the temple. When Solomon died, he was the son of King David who had conquered the area. Solomon had built the temple. When he died, his son took over, and his son was a fool and caused a problem. He, he caused a civil war to break out in Israel. And another man named Jeroboam was his enemy, and the country split into half. And Jeroboam took the northern half of Israel, and Rehoboam only had Judea and Benjamin and the city of Jerusalem. So 
I wish I could move this map, but it would be right in this area. And then the whole rest of Israel, all the way up to Dan, all the way up into this area here, uh, was the, the, what they called the northern tribes. So there were the northern ten, the southern two. And the king of the northern ten, Jeroboam, decided that it would be a bad thing to let his people go down to Jerusalem three times a year to worship because they might feel bad about what happened and reconcile, and then he would get his head chopped off. So he built an altar to the Lord against the commands of God, and he put one in a city called Bethel, which would have been way down here somewhere, just above Jerusalem. So anybody that lived in the north, as they were coming down, they would go by Bethel, and there'd be a temple to the Lord there. And, and, and they'd be outside going, hey, you don't have to go, don't go all the way down. Jerusalem's so busy, it's crowded this time of year. Come on over here. It's like the outlet version of, of Jewish worship, right? You can go to the outlet temple over here. And a lot of people did. They went there and worshiped instead. He also put one up in the city of Dan at the far north of Israel, so that people who were in the middle could go either north or south, but they didn't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. It was super convenient. He made it easy. And he led the entire northern Israel into apostasy, into heresy. They began to worship at these false altars, these false temples, and as a result, the whole kingdom fell apart. They were eventually wiped out after a couple hundred years by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and on until we get to the Romans and Jesus' day. The reason why I say all that is because Jesus is in this area with his disciples, and trust me, they would know this history. That story of Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the two temples was a black eye in the history of the Jewish people. And it was well known from the time they were kids, they would have been taught that story not to be apostate, not to fall into heresy. There's only one place to worship, at the temple. And it's here, in the shadow of Dan and of the Augustineum and of the sanctuary of Pan, that Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, who do the people say I am? They answer, well, some say you're a prophet, uh, John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, one of the other prophets, I don't know. Isn't that amazing? Jesus was so significant. His, his life was so uh, amazing that people who did not know him, people on the outside, people who, who kind of saw him or heard him from a distance, they thought he was somebody who raised from the dead. But then he looks at his disciples and he says, who do you my best friends, my closest compadres, the guys who know me best, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you're the Messiah. It's another way of saying you're the chosen one. You're the special promise of, of God. You're the one that God prophesied would come and make everything right for the nation of Israel. You would fix all of our problems. You would restore our kingdom to prominence. You'd return us to glory. You're the Messiah he declared this in this backdrop where people were worshiping Pan, where they were worshiping Caesar, where historically the Jews had gone apostate against the Lord, their God. And right there with this as the background, he said, you're the Messiah, not these idols, not these other false religious beliefs, not this her heretical altar or temple. You're the Messiah. You're the one. Now, the story doesn't tell us, but we know in another account that Jesus gives Peter, kudos. Hey, great job, Peter. You know, I'm going to give you the kings of the kingdom of heaven and on. And, and Peter's got to be feeling pretty chuffed right about now. Where's Joseph? He's got to feel pretty chuffed right about now. Really good about himself. You know, if you want to know Jesus for who he really is, 
There is a point in time where you have to leave the crowd and become part of the, the group. There is a crowd around Jesus even today. There are people that come to church or hear about him or they watch it on TV or they have a, uh, some sort of connection to him and they think he's awesome and he's great, but they're very far removed from him. They just see him as a great guy with some great thoughts and I don't know if he's God or not, but whatever, he's awesome and go Jesus. But if you really want to know who he is, if you really want to understand him, you're going to have to get out of the crowd and move into the group. You're going to have to come closer. Even in a church, we have a crowd of people who are really on the edge, and I'm calling you to move towards the middle, to come closer to knowing Jesus for who he really is, because it's then and only then do you see him as Messiah, not just as a good guy who did some amazing things. That looks like getting to know him. How do you get to know him? Well, you got to read the Bible. You got to have someone teach you the Bible. You got to get involved into the Christian lifestyle. You've got to embrace the idea of Christianity and begin to practice it. And then and only then do you move from the crowd to the group. And then and only then do you know what he was really like and, 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 and who he is. And then and only then does your mind begin to grow and expand. And do you see him as Messiah? Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Knowing that he had six months to live, the disciples did not know this at this time, but Jesus was aware that he had about six months left to live. And after they declared him Messiah, whatever that meant to them, whatever limited understanding they had of him, they had enough to know that he was something more than just someone raised from the dead. They had a sense that he was the, that, that he was the promised one of God. And they said so to his face. And that was awesome. And Jesus was excited. But when Jesus began to talk about what Messiahship looked like, what that meant for his life, and what it was going to mean for their life, well, then they changed their tune. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking about? You're going to die. I mean, if you're going to die, what is that going to happen to me? I'm your follower. And it says that he began to speak plainly. He was trying to prepare them for what was to come, but they had a real hard time accepting this message. And I, I can see in Peter that this was just too much. No, Jesus, no. You're not going to die. Not like Jeroboam and all his followers and the Israelites that went astray with him. Not like Caesar, who's now dead and gone and supposedly people worship him. No, that's not going to happen to you. Not even like the great Pan who had died. Can I tell you something interesting? I've been reading a little bit of Greek mythology lately. I read the Odyssey and now I'm reading a history of Greek mythology and I'm learning about it and I'm, I'm picking up some. It's complicated. If you ever try to read it, it makes no sense. It's very weird. But you know what's really interesting in, in Greek mythology? Did you know that the god Pan was one of only two gods in Greek mythology to actually die? What's even weirder is he died about the same time Caesar Augustus died, in the lifetime of Jesus. 
There's actually a story of a sailor on the open sea who heard a voice from heaven that said, the great pan is dead. And then he was called to go tell people. And he did. He went and told people, Pan is dead. The God of nature, the God of, of, of creation, the God of everything is dead. He died in the lifetime of Jesus Christ. Just like Caesar Augustus. Now you say, well, would they have known that? I don't know, but considering that they were at the sanctuary of Pan, they might have heard something. Not only that, but this, this story was so widespread in the ancient world that even Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, the man who replaced Caesar Augustus, called the sailor and had a special meeting with him just to hear the story about the death of Pan. And I can imagine Peter going, no, Jesus, you're not going to go the way of Pan. You're not going to go the way of Caesar Augustus. You're not going to go the way of, of, of uh, Jeroboam and the Israelites who went apostate. I mean, there's no way. You can't die. I just said you're the one. No way. That can't be. I can't let that happen. It's so hard to be faithful when your faith seems so powerless. I don't know about you, but I can tell you there are times in everyone's life, any believer in Christ, in my life, where I have not felt the Spirit at work. I don't know if he's at work. I don't have God's eyes. But from my perspective, I don't see him working. And it's so hard to stay faithful when your dreams and your prayers and your beggings and everything you do, you go to God again and again and again, and he doesn't seem to answer. Is he dead? Is he gone? Is he like Pan? Is he like Augustus? Is he just turned out to be a nobody, a fraud? No, Jesus, you can't die. I'm not going to let you die. You can't go that way. Because that would devastate my faith. I wouldn't know what to do with myself. I can see, I can relate, I can feel what Peter felt here. And what the other disciples may have felt. They had so much hope in him. They had so much trust in him. He had done so many amazing things. How could he die? Especially in the ancient world, dying was, you know, if you were somebody of note and you died, it was like, oh, that guy was a fraud. It would have discredited everything. You know, Jesus doesn't address Peter and say, oh, Peter, come here and let me... Let me help you out. I'm going to give you a little vision about what's going to happen in six months, and there's some pretty cool things coming down the road. Let me, I, I get it. You don't understand. And let me, let me help you. No, he said, get behind me, Satan. Peter went from hero to zero <laughs> in a hurry. He professed faith in Jesus, and then he acted so faithlessly. Can you relate? How many times have you said, I, I feel it, Lord. I feel it. I'm with you. Where's that beer? What about that? What's that girl's name? You know, I mean, we were so weak at times. We're so faithless at times. We can think we feel. We have all this great faith, and then we just fall like a ton of bricks. Now let's be fair. 
Peter had no idea what Messiahship meant. He, I don't know if Peter fully realized that Jesus was the Son of God at this point. He certainly thought of him as something more than a prophet, more than John the Baptist, more than Elijah. They saw him as someone greater. They saw him as the anointed one of God. But whether they understood him as being divine is in question. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't uh, encourage Peter. He doesn't help Peter with that. What does he do? He rebukes him and the rest of the disciples for their lack of faith. Here's the point. If Jesus is Lord, then we have to let go. And we have to let God. I don't know what Jesus has in store for my life. You don't know what he has in store for your life. But I do know this. If I believe he's Lord and if you believe he's Lord, then it's not up to us to tell him how he should get it done. It's not our place to decide the plan for our life. It's Jesus's place. And I think that's why maybe he didn't try to help Peter for a minute here. He just slammed him and the rest of the disciples. How dare you call me Lord and then not trust my plan? That's, that's a fake form of religion. That's false religion. That's what, that's what the pagans do. The, the people that worship Caesar, that worship Pan, they acted all good and pious when they were at the sanctuary, but they were just as immoral as anyone else. No, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to call him Lord, then that means you got to believe and trust in the outcome in your life, even if it isn't your outcome, even if you weren't consulted about the outcome. If Jesus is Lord, you have to let go and you have to let God. My son Hunter's in the army right now. He left on Monday. And he called me. <laughs> he doesn't get much calls. And he has like literally like just a few minutes to call. Uh, actually, it was seconds. And the first call we got was a voicemail. I'm here. I'm fine. Click. <laughs> That's Hunter. The second phone call was I answered the phone. I got him. I said, hey, Hunter, how you doing? Everything's okay. It's crazy here, Dad. It's crazy. People are freaking out. I don't have, I haven't made it, I'm not good at making friends. I haven't really connected with people. I'm trying. It's very hard. A guy freaked out and drank a bottle of Lysol to try to get out of here. Wow. Gotta go. Click. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do with that? I'm like, I'm thinking of all my friends that I know in the military. Can you guys go there? Could you, could you please check in for me, right? Tell my wife that we were like, great, we're just stressed out now, right? I don't know what's happening. Called me yesterday. Hey, Dad, write this down. And he gave me his, his address so we can write him. He's like, I won't be able to talk much. They said, I, I won't be able to talk to you for eight weeks. You can write. I'll try to write you back. Um, but I want you to know I'm okay. It was really encouraging to hear him calm. He was like, Dad, I'm okay. It's going to be fine. I made a couple friends, and you know what? I'm going to handle it. I said, are you sure, Hunter? You don't have to drink Lysol. You can just call. <laughs> he goes, no, 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 I'm fine. He go, I go, oh, is, is it hard? Like, what's he goes, Dad, it's easy. I'll be fine. Don't worry. Wouldn't it have been nice if Jesus would have said that to Peter? Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if he would say it to us sometimes? 
when everything's coming apart, when, when, when things are hitting you right and left, wouldn't it be just nice to hear the voice and, hey, it's going to be okay? That doesn't always happen. And why does that not always happen? Because Jesus is Lord. Amen. It's his way. And we don't always have to know his way. And we don't always have to agree with his way. The fact of the matter is sometimes we're not going to know his way. And we're not even going to agree with his way. But we've made him Lord. And we can trust in that. That is enough. It's enough. Hunter is learning that it's the army way. That's it. He doesn't get to choose his way either. It's the army way. It's the Jesus way. We have to let go. We have to let God. If we're going to be followers, it's the only thing we can do. It's the only choice we have, and it's the only option he gave the disciples. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Finally, Jesus now breaks into some explanation. He sits the guys down, and this time he opens up, he gets Peter and all of them together, and he says, okay, listen, let me, let me just walk you through this. There's three things that, that come into play when you decide to call me Messiah. When you decide to say Jesus is Lord, when you decide to believe in me, there's three things that are now in play. Number one, self-denial. Simply, simply put, self-denial is... God's will first. It's no longer my will, it's God's will. That's called self-denial. I don't get to do, do things my way, I have to defer to God's way. Number two, carry their cross. Now I have read this passage for 20-something years, and I really believe Jesus said something to me just recently that helped me understand this phrase more than I've ever understood it before. And it would seem funny because I've taught this passage. I've talked about what it means. Well, you got to die to yourself. The cross is a symbol of death in the Roman Empire. And so if you carry your cross, it means you got to die to yourself. And I'd sit there, act like I knew what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> what that means, and I'm sorry, because there's no other way to explain this. But here's what carrying your cross means. You are going to suffer and die. That's it. That is what that phrase meant. He looked at those guys and he said, not only am I going to die, but you're going to suffer and die right along with me. And everyone else that follows me, if they choose to say Jesus is Messiah, not only do you have to deny yourself, but you're going to suffer and you're going to die. Oh, good. Let's sign up. <laughs> I'm in. And then he says, and follow me. Let go and let me. Let me be in charge. Let me walk you through this life. Let me get you to where you really want to go. If you want to try to save your life, you're going to lose it. No amount of health food and exercise routines and doctor visits is going to save your life. 
You can live a long, full life, be healthy as an ox, and die in a car accident. We're all going to die. But if you live to try to preserve your life here, you're going to lose it. But if you live to preserve it in the afterlife, if you live it the way I want to show you how to live it, if you're willing to follow me where I'm going, then I'm going to bring you to eternal life. And then I love the reason. What good is it for someone to gain the world and forfeit their, their very soul? What can anyone give in exchange? In other words... I know you think this world is real permanent and you think it's real, but let me tell you, it's just a short time and then there's eternity. And eternity is what matters. Eternity is what's real. Eternity is what lasts. And so whatever you know, misery you have to endure in this life, it's nothing in comparison to the glory and the joy you're going to experience in the afterlife. My wife shared something with me and it really helped me. You know, as a parent, um, you worry about your kids. And sometimes, you know, we think, are kids ever going to get a job? Are they ever going to figure it out? You, you just worry. My kids are awesome. They're going to do fine. But you still worry. You can't help it. It just happens. And my wife goes, you know, at the end of the day, if, if my son is a, you know, any one of my kids is a window washer for 40 years, does it really matter? And I want to say yes. But it doesn't, does it? So What? So what if you don't get the promotion? So what if you don't get the job you want? So what if you don't get the girl or the guy you want? So what? I'm not trying to be insensitive. I know it hurts. You do have to suffer. It's hard. But at the end of the day, when you have the right perspective and you're not living for this life, you're living for the next life, none of that stuff really matters, does it? Because the reward far outweighs any of the misery or the suffering. What are you holding on to? I'm going to give you a chance to answer that. I want you to think. I want to have a little participation here. What are you holding on to? What are you clinging to in this life? I'll go first. I keep clinging to my rights. I don't know why, but I do. I feel like, you know, this is my right. Don't take my rights away. I like to go shooting. Don't take that away from me. You know, I want to I have my vacations. Don't take those away from me. I'm holding on to things, right? But at the end of the day, they're not going with me. And they're not worth it. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to stop going shooting. I like doing it. Or I'm going to stop taking vacations. I like doing it. And yeah, if I have the means to defend my rights, I, I don't have a problem defending my rights. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a part where we hold on so tightly that they become gods. They become idols. It's like we're worshiping Pan or Caesar or Jeroboam all over again. They become our idols. What about you? Who would have the courage here to share? Joseph. Wow, thank you for being so honest. Your time. Yeah. I have a funny story about time. I was at a garage sale, and an elderly man, and he was very elderly, late 80s, came to the garage sale. It was in the middle of summer, and he you know, got out of his car super slow, walked up, looked at stuff. He saw some Christmas ornaments, and I sold them for like a dime. 
He goes, how much? I go, a dime. He gave me the dime, and he goes, wishful thinking, I guess. <laughs> he went back to his <laughs> In other words, he wasn't sure he was going to make it to Christmas. I know that one, that one, that one burns with you for a while, but, but I just, I, I laughed so hard, but you know, time. They say people buy books because they think it's going to give them time because I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. Anyone else? Yeah. My fantasy life of happiness. Your fantasy life of happiness. Welcome to Fantasy Island. Where's Tattoo? Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah, thank you. That's that, I'm sure a lot of us can relate to that, letting go of embarrassment, not being what we wanted to be. One more. Yeah. Um, kind of along the lines of my time, but just like my freedom to make choices on what I want to do. It's okay. She needs a nap. She wants a nap and a whole pizza. She wants to, the ability to, to sort of make your own destiny. And, and you have so many people taking from you. It's so hard to feel that, right, Amber? Yeah. Yeah. You just want the peace and the freedom. I appreciate that. I appreciate the tears. You know, you can lay down. There's four chairs right there. Take a nap. Won't, won't bother me in the least. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you know, we got to let go and we got to let God. There's so many things we try to hold on to. We hold on with dear life and they're not going to be there at the end. You don't see U-Hauls on the back of hearse, do you? It ain't going with you. Verse 38, we're going to close out here. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this, uh, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them, them when he comes in the Father's glory and the glory of the angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. So I spent some time, as we've been talking about meditation, Christian meditation, and, and I spent some time meditating on the passage here before I preached it. And, and this, this is the verse that stood out to me. That phrase, adulterous and sinful generation. I don't know why, but my eyes were drawn to that, and I just meditated on it. I really believe God spoke to me. And you know what I heard him say? It's not that hard. It's not. It's not that hard. It seems hard, but it's not that hard. Because all we got to do is better than adulterous and wicked people. Like, that's it. We just got to stand out in an environment of horribly bad people. I mean, just a little bit of suffering, just a little bit of dying, just a little bit of self-denial looks like a lot in the world we live in. We're amazed when people go out of their way to open the door for someone. It's not that difficult when you put it in perspective. When you think about eternity and you think about where the end of life is and how impermanent this life is and how Jesus is Lord and he dictates our way. And when we can let go and we can let God, what we find out is it's not that hard. There's a great story a friend of mine told me about a minister who went to spend time at a, at a, a monastery. He wanted to see what the monastery life was. And he went, I think he stayed a year there or something. 
And he came in, and they greeted him, and they showed him around, and they gave him his room and all that. And it was one of these ones where, you know, it's very Spartan and all that. And the, the head monk came to him and said, okay, well, you're all settled in. We're happy to have you. Just uh, let us know if you need anything, and we'll tell you how to live without it. <laughs> There's so much we hold on to. And, you know, we find out if we just let it go, it's not that hard. Because the world we're in is so wicked. It's not that hard. It doesn't take much. And then he ends with this interesting line about this promise. He gives a promise. He says, some of you who are standing here will not die before you see something amazing, before you see the kingdom of God come. And here's where, where I love Jesus, because after all this, at the very end, he does say, let me give you guys a hint. He does help us out, even in the difficult times. He doesn't always leave us floundering, even though it feels like it. If we really listen, if we really listen closely to him, we find out that he does give us some insight. He does give us some help along the way. And that's what he's doing here. He's telling these guys, look, guys, very soon you're going to see something that you cannot believe. You would not believe if I told you. You think I'm going to die? You're going to see the kingdom of God come in power. No, I'm nothing like Pan, I'm nothing like Caesar, I'm nothing like Jeroboam and all the apostate Israelites. I'm nothing like them. I'm going to usher in the kingdom of God. I love that he gives us a little bit of hope at the end. He gave them a little bit of hope. Guys, it's, it's not as bad. Unfortunately, one of you ain't going to be around because one of you is going to punch out too soon. You're going to quit. That was Judas. He quit. And if he would have just hung in there just another week, he would have seen the glory. He would have seen what Jesus was talking about. I'm not going to get into it. That's for another lesson. I'm going to leave you wanting to know what it is, though. That's how Jesus works with us. He really brings us to the edge of ourself so that we can let go and we can let him. You know, that old couple, they tried to hold on 10 years too long. And the, the dad or the husband, when he got there, he realized, what were we doing when this was at the other end of the reward? Why were we fighting so hard to stay here? If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to have to learn to let go and let God. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Father, it is wonderful to be together. Thank you for the incredible story that we read in your, in your scriptures and for the the message that brings us just a step closer to becoming like Christ and understanding him. Help it to guide us this week and lead us in the way that we go forward in our lives and have the right perspective trusting in you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. Next Sunday, we're not going to be here. We're going to be at the outdoor service. We've got an awesome outdoor service planned next Sunday. Breakfast is at 9.30, so come early. And it's, it's a potluck, so each family group brings some food to share for everyone. The Shoreline Church is coming to join us. We're going to be at Caneo Creek Park. Breakfast, 930. Worship.